Hello, this is Sasha. And this is Steven. And this is Shut Up, I Love It, a podcast where we talk about those aspects of pop culture that are underrated. Or underseen. Underheard. Underrepresented. Underappreciated. Joining us today, we have two guests. Jeff Abraham and Bert Kearns, authors of the show Won't Go On, the most shocking, bizarre, and historic deaths of performance on stage. Who is Jeff Abraham, Stephen? Jeff is a comedy historian, and he is the go-to pop culture expert for television producers, documentary directors, and authors. He's represented comedy giants, including Andrew Dice Clay, Steve Harvey, George Lopez, Bill Maher, and for the last 11 years of his life, George Carlin. Also an owner and curator of the world's largest comedy album archives and is on the board of the National Comedy Center. Sasha, can you tell us a little bit about Bert? He's a television and motion picture producer, director, writer, journalist, and author of the controversial tabloid television memoir, Tabloid Baby. His credits include Conspiracy Theory with Jesse Ventura, Kardashian, the man who saved O.J. Simpson, oops, spoiler alert, and The Seven Python. And with two-time Academy Award winner Albert S. Ruddy, he wrote and produced a Burt Reynolds movie, the 20th Century Fox feature film Cloud Nine. Not only have they written this great new book, The Show Won't Go On, the most shocking, bizarre, and historic deaths of performers on stage, they also contribute outtakes and related stories like The Murder of Alfalfa to the website pleasekillme.com. Oh, and they also drove to Las Vegas together last summer to attend the Jerry Lewis auction. What was that like? What did you buy? Uh, We showed up at Planet Hollywood to the Jerry Lewis auction, we had to sit through 76 guns being sold before it got to any of the stuff that we were interested in. Wow, 76 guns. 76 lots of of weapons. Were there machine guns? Oh, yeah. Because Vegas, right? You can do whatever. <laughs> Colt 45, Berettas, uh, Snub 45s, you name it. It was like lot 32, a Colt 45. You know, it was crazy. Were you tempted to bid on any of those guns? No, we went, uh, there was some great movie memorabilia and, you know, and a lot of watches. He had about a, about a hundred different watches and some great, uh, luggage, um, from a lot of luggage from what, Louis Vuitton, <laughs> yeah, Louis, Louis Vuitton luggage. Huh. I bought a, a, Jerry, a piece of Jerry Lewis artwork. It was done on a large handkerchief that was monogrammed with his name on it. And I now own Jerry's trademark glasses as seen in The King of Comedy. Those are in the Abraham Comedy Archives now. Wow. Wow. That's really cool. Very cool. Uh, I don't know if it's going to be a surprise to our audience when we learn what is the subject of our discussion today. (laughs) Yeah, guys, what are we talking about today? Lady. Lady. (laughs) The man, the myth, the legend. Jerry Lewis. And specifically. Well, Jerry Lewis and his very legendary unseen film the day the clown cried yeah we're gonna dig in on that a little bit it's gonna be a very interesting conversation about this movie that almost no one has seen we've seen parts of it steven right sure, yeah for this podcast because there's a little bit out there there is there's a little bit out there for the uh, nancy drews among you who want to go snooping around looking for clips there's definitely enough to nullify a lot of what has been said over the past 40 years 
about the film because until until now it seems that only one person has admitted to seeing the film and gave his critique of it which we can get into oh yeah let's get into that but first let's talk a little bit about jerry and now just based on what we've talked about already it kind of seems like you guys are fans fanatics okay first of all how long have you known each other like and did jerry lewis bring you together I would say we've known each other probably for 20-plus years. we worked. I promoted book, um, Bert's book, um, Tabloid Baby, um, The Seventh Python, a documentary he did on um, about basketball. So we've known each other for 20-plus years, but it was probably in the last five or six years we really became closer over our session of Jerry Lewis, you know, emailing each other, hey, did you see this is going up on eBay? You Should I buy it? Bert, you may want this. Hmm. Hey, here's a rare Jerry Lewis lighter. I think this is perfect. I have a lot of Jerry Lewis lighters. <laughs> he would give them away whenever he made a film, whenever he did a TV series, he would have hundreds of lighters made up with his, with his caricature on it, and usually hmm. the words Jerry Lewis and thank you, and... We would give them away to people who worked on the set, people who visited the set, and now they're all over eBay. Who drew that caricature? Do you know who is the author of it? Sort of the famous caricature that one of you may or may not have as a tattoo. <laughs> that would be Bert. I know the tattoo was drawn by Mr. Cranky of um, Los Angeles, the tattoo artist. I don't know who did the original Who, who did the original caricature. I don't remember the name, but it was done in the mid-50s when... Mar- um, Jerry was with his partner Dean Martin, Martin mm-hmm. Lewis, and um, it was part of their famous caricatures. And I think they paid like the guy fifty bucks, and Jerry has gotten really good use of it for the next fifty <laughs> plus years. I do have an Al Hirschfeld Jerry Lewis tattoo as well. That caricature is Hirschfeld, the guy that used to write for the used to do art for the New York Times. So not do you only have one tattoo? You have two tattoos of Jerry Lewis. So we're dealing real fans here, real fans. That's right. These aren't fake. Jerry Lewis fans just trying to hop on board the hype train. Absolutely. As I sit here wearing my Jerry Lewis watch and shirt. <laughs> so who is the man that we call Jerry Lewis, uh, born uh, March 16th, 1926, with the name Joseph Levitch? Tell us a little bit about Jerry. He's simply a famous Jewish movie star. He sure is. Um, you know, when you think of performers who, who had a... A long-running career. It's Sinatra, Bob Hope, and Jerry Lewis would be up there from 1926, you know, up until he died. You know, it's you know almost a eight-decade career. Um, he did every facet of show business and did it successfully: live performance, movies, television, recording, directing, producing, acting. You know, it's and, and conducting. Uh, he did orchestra conducting, dancing, singing. Humanitarian. I mean, the man has raised $2 billion, wow. and that's with a B, billion dollars for charity. Inventing video assists that he was very proud of. Which, which is absolutely right on the money. It's something we still see uh, being used today in every movie. So why is Jerry Lewis... Why is he is a good subject for our podcast? Because you guys love him. He was super famous. He was super famous for years and years and decades in Hollywood. So why is that you asking us to shut up and love him? Well, he's also a very been a very divisive figure in entertainment. Some people love Jerry Lewis. Some people hate Jerry Lewis. Mm. Jerry Seinfeld once said that anybody who doesn't get Jerry Lewis doesn't get comedy. You know, Jerry Lewis started out when he was still a teenager, right? I think it was nineteen. Uh, 46 when he teamed up with Dean Martin and for 10 years they were the 
biggest act in show business. They were like the Beatles. They they were they were anarchic. They were they were a wild comedy team. And then that was transferred to film. And they they did films together up until 1956. Jerry Lewis always played the braying, crazed, screaming, shrinking monkey. monkey. He called himself the monkey. And so some people always saw Jerry Lewis as the monkey. And some people would say, like, he's really annoying. Well, I think he probably wore the monkey name, right? Because he liked to call Dean Martin the spine, the straight man, the spine. And he himself is the monkey attached to the spine. And I actually watched the 1950 excerpt on YouTube um, from their performance. And it was pretty crazy like how you could really sense the energy that they had on stage. And it was just overwhelming to the audience, I think, because there mm. was so much freedom and humor and like comedy technique on stage going on that I think people just hadn't seen at that point anything like it. You, you so it was a tremendous response. You mentioned energy. You have to remember in 1950, Jerry Lewis was 24 years old. We had not seen a comedian that young before. And really, not since Eddie Murphy had we seen a young comedian. When you think about Chaplin, the Marx Brothers, W.C. Veals, those gentlemen were already in their 40s. When Milton Berle, who was on TV in 1948, he was 40. Jerry Lewis was 24. And that energy was so evident, especially when you watch those Colgate comedy hours, more, which really captures the closest to what the Martin Lewis energy was like on stage. That duo didn't survive for too long to go on with, you know, history of Jerry Lewis because mostly Jerry Lewis decided that he can make a name for himself, right? Because he was getting more critical response and audience response from those films that they were making together. And so he decided to go on his own. Is that, do I get the story right? Well, sort of. They also began to hate each other's guts after working together in close quarters for 10 years. When they made a movie, Dean Martin would be very happy to just go golfing all day, come in, read his lines and leave. Jerry Lewis would be all over every person on the set to find out what that job was and how, do, how yeah. was it done. How do we light this scene? How do you use the camera? Jerry Lewis had his hands in everything. And he began to really take over the, the production of the act. And Dean Martin resented it. Dean Martin just, he was, one of, he was the ultimate cool guy. Mm -hmm. If you know, he was the, the one person in the world who Frank Sinatra wishes he was. Everybody else wished they were Frank. Frank wished he could be Dean. And the other thing is, you have to remember when they would review a Martin Lewis movie, they would say, and Dean Martin sang a couple of songs. You know, you know, I, I don't care what kind of ego a performer has, that's not going to sit on you year in, year out. And it did, I think it just got to Dean. And, and I think D Jerry always said that the wives and other people were saying, you know what, you could go out on your own and do just as well, if not better. And I think that was the forces. Very, you know, if you look at the Beatles, the same way. I think their wives were pushing them to go in their own direction. Women tend to always right. direct men in the wrong direction away from Ugh. their passion. You don't have to tell me, Sasha. <laughs> but, I, but I think the show business benefited from that split. You know, Jerry Lewis, who had the bug to be a filmmaker, you know, you know, was very soon acting and writing and directing and producing his own movies. And Dean Martin had a recording career that was second to none, became a, a great dramatic actor in some wonderful w westerns with John Wayne and, and uh, Cliff Montgomery and Frank Sinatra and some come running. And then he had, you know, the, the variety show. So show business actually benefited from their split. Which is very interesting. Usually splits tend to be like the bad move, right? Yeah, you know, uh, I, I don't. I think most people would argue that um, the Beatles is a better band than Wings. <laughs> yeah. So then, you know, Jerry Lewis he makes a few 
movies that people go gaga over, like The Naughty Professor in what, 1963, that had a huge cult following many countries, not just the United States, right? Like people oh, sure. in Sweden, I guess they play it every week on television. Sure. But um, yeah, so it's a big cult movie that Eddie Murphy then was in the remake of. Then Jerry also made The Bellboy. When Jerry Lewis made The Bellboy, he'd, he'd made a, a movie called Cinderfella. And Cinderfella was a film that was ba based on Cinderella. Jerry Lewis played this, the Cinderfella character. And that was a movie that, um, that the, uh, the studio, Paramount, wanted to have come out for the summer. Because Jerry Lewis would do a summer flick. He'd do a, a, a Christmas flick. They wanted it out for the summer. And it was, it was around January at the time. And Jerry Lewis said, no, no, this is a Christmas movie, man. And they said, no, you've got to have a movie uh, coming out this summer. So he said, look, I'll give you a movie. I'll give you a, I'll give you a, a movie that will come out in the summer. And he went, he went down to Miami Beach where he had an engagement at the Fontainebleau Hotel. And he, he wrote a script in two weeks and then found other celebrities who happened to be uh, performing in the area, let them come in. And he shot the movie in, I think, 20 days and put out a movie in which his character was basically a pantomime character through the whole thing. And it became a legendary huge hit, The, the Bellboy. Yeah, I saw that movie as, as well as The Nutty Professor. And I'd say The Bellboy is pretty close to, you know, Buster Keaton or maybe Charlie Chaplin. You know, there's definitely a lot of physical comedy and technique that um, echoes those giants of comedy. So uh, by the time we get to 1972, that's when production starts on the day the clown cried what is jerry's career like at this point and by 1972 you know in the late 60s he had you know his his contract with paramount had had ended he had made some movies at columbia three on a couch hook line and sinker and it really the society was changing you know this was you know woodstock you know society was changing so people mm -hmm. like jerry lewis became out of fashion it was the smothers brothers so he really was you know was still a, an in demand live performer working the nightclubs the theaters Las Vegas and the telethon was a big part of it but he really had no film career to speak of so this was a wonderful challenge for him to do something different and also he by this point in his career he also had a reputation as as something of a of a pompous blowhard i mean his all of his films that were huge hits in the early 60s were basically directed toward kids and as he got older, sort of like Adam Sandler, but you know, a genius Adam Sandler, uh, he <laughs> like like Sandler's films. He was trying to make the transition into doing adult roles, but the adult audiences weren't weren't following him. He was basically known for failed television variety shows, appearances on talk shows, and the telethon. Every year, Jerry Lewis would would hijack twenty four hours of television time on Labor Day weekend and put on this telethon for muscular dystrophy. Tell us about it, Bert, because you worked on at least one telethon, yes. if not more. Well, that's, that's where I became infected with the virus as, as a child. <laughs> when I was a kid, I grew up in that sweet spot of Jerry Lewis's career. Around the time of the ladies' man, the errand boy, the nutty professor, I would go, my parents, my mother would dump us off at the Norwalk Theater on weekends for, to see uh, double features of Jerry Lewis films. And we would have uh, muscular dystrophy carnivals in our driveway because he was tied in with mcdonald's and they would you'd be able to send away to jerry lewis and he'd send you you know uh, ideas for for putting on um little displays in your driveway to make money for muscular dystrophy and that was really huge in the 60s so kids still loved jerry lewis by the time we got to by the time we got to again to like 1972 
Jerry Lewis really wasn't making films anymore, right? Yeah, he had fallen out of fashion. You know, you know like I said, fashions had changed. And um, so this was a welcome thing. Also, it was a movie he would not have done earlier in his career when he was still the clown. This now he was older and could um, could try something dramatic because he had aged. You know, he he Jerry Lewis, the character, had matured. So now it was time to move on. So here was this script that had been sitting around for a few years. I just learned something yesterday doing research mm. on the day the clown cried. Bert may not even know this fact. Oh boy! The title was used for a documentary about the Hartford Circus Fire, which is one of the most horrifying circus fires ever. Which ironically ties into the book. The show won't go on. Bert, tell us about that circus fire. Well, the 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 Hartford Circus Fire was um, the Ringling Brothers Barnum and Bailey Circus came to town, and the tent caught on fire. And how many people died? 177 people were killed in the fire. And at the time it broke out, the Great Walendas were on the high wire, uh, the, the Great Walendas High Wire Act. Uh, they were the first to notice that the flames were licking the sides of the tent. And they, um, they, all, they all survived. But they didn't survive other performances, as you could find out if you read the book. <laughs> Oof, but, what a nice tease. But it was the, one of the greatest... Not great. It's one of the most tragic <laughs> circus accidents ever in the history of, rec- of recorded um, entertainment. You know, 167 people plus perished in this fire. Did you we know, say what year it was? 1944, 1943, I believe. So the 1940s. This, yeah. And so one, this, one of the people who was in the audience who was traumatized by this, who saw people die in front of him, became the great comedian and director and... Um, game show guest Charles Nelson Riley, hmm. and he actually did a one-man show where this was a big part of it. And there's a wonderful shot of Emmett Kelly the clown, you know, bringing a bucket of water to the fire, and that's where the uh, image of a day the clown cried. And so it was interesting when googling it, it came up. I said it was the name of this documentary, and this was in the early '60s. Um, but going back to the screenplay, the screenplay had been written by a publicist named Joan O'Brien and a columnist named Charles. Dayton, Denton, and they originally tried to do it for television, and it was too hot, too controversial for television, and they tried to shop it around, and in the early 60s, Alec Guinness was attached to this project. Hmm. He was going to star in it, um, produce it, and then that kind of went away, and then Milton Berle, which is an interesting choice, a a clown of uh, one generation older than Jerry Lewis, he was attached to it, and he said... This could be my Oscar-winning performance, very much like uh, Rod Steiger in The Porn Broker. And that went for a number of years. It was always, we're going to do it this summer. It's moved. We're going to do it in January. And that disappeared. Other names had been attached. It's apparently Dick Van Dyke, um, Bobby Darren. But Burl was attached for quite a long time. And then it went dormant. And by 1971 or so, Jerry Lewis becomes attached. And he always said, I was offered this script for 10 years, and I turned it down. But ironically, I did not, not denying Jerry Lewis the truth of what he's saying, but I, I couldn't come across any entries of Jerry Lewis prior to about 1971 with his name attached to the movie. Hmm. And at this point in film history, the Holocaust drama is not really a thing. Right at, at this in in 2019, you know, there's there's usually at least one Holocaust movie every year. But at at this point in in 1972, that wasn't really a 
a subject, for lack of a better word, genre of movie that was being made at the time. Right. The World War II movie was 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 still pretty big. They were, they were doing World War II movies, but to do a movie about the Holocaust, which was still very fresh in people's minds, it was it was only what twenty five years mm. or so since the the Holocaust took place. But to have a comedian star in the film, Jerry Lewis. You know, even though he ref- often referred to himself as super Jew and was very proud of his Jewish heritage, although he didn't bring up his children Jewish. His wife was a Roman Catholic, and all of his kids went to Catholic school and were mm-hmm. baptized as Roman Catholics. And when he had his, his oldest child, uh, Gary Lewis, reached bar mitzvah age, Jerry's parents gave him a lot of pressure to give the kid a bar mitzvah. So they hired a photographer and, and faked the photos. <laughs> Uh, to, send, to send to his mother and father. So they thought that Gary was bar mitzvah, but he never was. Are if those my are... <laughs> parents had done that, that would have been a lot easier. Those are the same children that he cuts off completely from his will later <laughs> well, on. Well, they weren't children when, when they were cut off. They were grown men and go on. But, you know, it's that is a you know great ta- you know TMZ headline. Jerry Lewis leaves children out of will. But have, Bert and I have been very privy to have inside information about these, some of these children. <laughs> I'm, we're not surprised he's had nothing to do with some of these children. I've, we've heard nightmares about this. Well, when your child is 70, it's like, you know, it's not it, like th- yeah. children. George Burns also, when he died at 100, he didn't give money to his children. He said they lived long lives during the 70s. I took care of them. So pe- people living leaving children out of their, <laughs> their news is not a big deal. But when it's Jerry Lewis, it's a big deal. Uh, Where did the money go then? To the second wife and his daughter with her. Oh, the younger child. Well, yeah. He apparently cheated a whole lot on at least his first wife. Allegedly. Uh, Sure. (laughs) It's always allegedly when the man cheats on his wife. So then when they break up, it appears that they break up on very bad terms. And yeah, so then the children kind of go in that same bundle of, I have nothing to do with that family, right? Mm -hmm. Yes. Well, they they, they bounce back and forth between allegiances. Mm-hmm. And that, that, was, that was also part of it, too. Some of the, uh, I think one or two of the sons uh, attended the wedding uh, of Jerry Lewis and, and, and Sam. Uh, other ones didn't. They went over, you know, over, over 40 years, 50 and, years. And over the years, you know, J- J- you know, Chris Lewis was involved with the telethon. They, um, Anthony had worked with his father and traveled him. So they, they did go in and out of fa- faction. There's, I mean, there's just a lot of personal things we don't know. Sure. Um, we never do. But going back to the Holocaust, remember, we, you know, just even making fun of Germans, you know, we did have Hogan's Heroes, but this is before Mel Brooks, you know, was doing the, you know, you know, he had done the producers, but it was Jerry Lewis was a was a proud Jew and you know wanted to make a mark about Hitler in this movie. So mm. that's an interesting thing. So the big question about this movie that we saw pieces we of this movie, right, is the tone, right? How much comedy is really? in this film and i haven't read the script but you have and can you tell from the script is it just dramatic movie or other scenes that are comedic it's a it's a dramatic film it's a very dramatic film it's a very respectful film and it it's it's an art film it you know from from the parts that we've seen it's it's a moving very touching and moving and deeply felt film there are elements of comedy in it jerry lewis plays a clown and there are bits where he's performing as a clown he performs we'll get into what the, the plot is about but he performs as a clown there are a couple of scenes that are in the script that are a little bit off-putting there's one point where jerry lewis playing the, a prisoner in a in a prison camp is left in his bunk while all the other prisoners are outside he oversleeps for a, some sort of roll call and the guard opens up all the windows and all the doors and lets all the cold air in 
so that um, Jerry Lewis is like freezing and he gets out of bed. He doesn't have a blanket anymore. And he goes around the corner into the bathroom and you hear him urinate ice cubes. Mm-hmm. And that's sort of that's the one bit in the movie that I think people have jumped on as saying, "Look at the slapstick mm-hmm. funny stuff." But it was it was it was a weird, again, it was an audio um, joke, mm-hmm. a gag, a gag, a very yeah. Jerry Lewis gag. Yeah, that doesn't also be also out of also very European, a very Jacques Tati sort of thing. Mm-hmm. You know, use you know the, the, those those sound gags. That's the one thing that 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 stands out. And the whole rest of the film, there there aren't any. Um, Bert, could you talk a little bit about what we watched this uh, this assembly uh, that that's out there that 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 you pointed us toward? That it's almost out there, but not really, right? I think it was in 2016 footage we saw footage for the first time, re- really, and it turns out it was footage that had been seen in a uh, German documentary, and there was some Swedish documentary, which was the movie was partially shot in Sweden. So we're, it was basically this footage really 40 years later had escaped and we had got a lot of it was pulled up on YouTube. A lot of it was pulled off quickly and things of that nature. So I th- I don't know if it's still on YouTube now. I know a lot of it's been pulled off for legal reasons. Well, what's, what somebody in Germany did was took all of the available footage and, and assembled it chronologically, assembled it into a, a rough cut of the film. And the scenes that were not in the film. They left out large parts of the film, but you get the basic idea of the arc. The scenes that, that weren't there, they, they had actors reenact them and, 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 and read the lines in a studio. It seemed like those were maybe the actors from the original Yeah, film. you are correct. A couple of those yeah. actors were from the original movie. That is correct. Yeah, so it's about 30 minutes long, this piece that we watched. And yeah, you get a sense of how the movie starts, how, how Jerry's character ends up in the camp, What's the arc of this character? Right. Well, the f- you want to go over what, what, the, what the plot is. Yeah, yeah. let's talk Please. about it. Um, What's his name? First of all, his, originally he was named, his name was Carl Schmidt, right? Carl Schmidt. And of course, this being Jerry Lewis, he changed the name to Helmut Dork. <laughs> so he gives it sort of a Jerry Lewis, sort of Julius Kelp kind of name. And he's uh, not playing a Jew in, in the movie. Very interesting. He's not playing a yeah. Jew. It, it takes a bit. You have to get into the movie uh, maybe about 10 minutes before you even realize that it's taking place... Uh, in Germany during World War II, and that, and that, that that's a Hitler movie. Um, it opens up with Jerry Lewis as a clown who may have at one point been a great clown. Now he's working as a stooge for the star of a circus. And it opens up with an entry that the, that the clown is making, the, the, the star of the circus. Jerry Lewis, and he's, he walks on into the, th- the, the ring of the circus, and Jerry Lewis is holding on to his, the tails of his coat which is about 30 feet long <laughs> like they are yeah and jerry lewis trips on the way in and gets a much bigger laugh than the star does now jerry jerry's character claims that it was a mistake they said no it wasn't you're trying to outshine him he gets fired from the circus by the lead clown by the lead clown so he gets he gets fired <laughs> from the circus he goes home to his wife and the actress is someone who worked with ingmar bergman yeah and, she's a famous oh. actress right although she does complain about the actress herself about jerry as the director, right? Uh, but she, I did recognize her from a bunch of Ingmar Bergman movies. Yeah. She's great. I could not rem- remember her name now. But And he's so angry and he's, he's had it with life. He's had it. He, he can't take it anymore. What does he do? He goes to the bar. And he goes to the bar and he sits there and he has a drink. And he's drinking and he's cursing the world. And then he looks up and then they reveal above the bar, it's a picture of Adolf Hitler. So... Jerry has some words. Helmet has some words about Hitler. He makes fun of Hitler. He actually does some goose stepping around the bar, and he he does this this you know he becomes a clown imitating Hitler. 
He doesn't notice the two SS guys sitting at a table having a drink watching him. Jerry gets arrested. He winds up being taken on a train to a prison camp. Mm-hmm. But at this point, I think you realize that two years have passed, and he's he's in this in the barracks with the other prisoners. Uh, they're all Aryan. They're all they're all criminals. Uh, Jerry uh, Helmet is very standoff from the rest of them. He doesn't believe he belongs there, and he's been promised that there's some paperwork that's going to get him out at any moment. And he keeps trying to talk to the guards and talk to the Gestapo to get the permission to leave, and they keep putting that putting that off. He can't get out. He's pressured by some bullying prisoners to prove that he was the great clown, and he refuses to do it. And he gets beaten, and he gets he gets in fights with people, and he thinks he's so far above everyone. At this point, when you're reading the script, right, because you're mostly taking this detailed plot from the script, right? right? What is the sense that you're getting from this character? Like, is it very sympathetic? Is he very out of place, like fish out of water? Because being such a, you know, big comedy star, like, how does he read in this film? He is not like a Roberto Bagnini character. He's not likable through this part of it. Later, he becomes likable when he finds his redemption in the script. He's, he's, he's aloof. He's very standoffish from the other prisoners. He doesn't want to get involved with, with any sort of you know games, soccer that they play. He's not, he's not interested in that. Because he thinks he's going to get out, right? He thinks he's going to get out. He doesn't so, want to make any waves, yeah. and he doesn't belong there. Does he make, uh, at this point already, his best friend, his BFF at the prison camp? Yes, he's friends with the minister. Mm-hmm. And the minister sort of watches over him, uh, gets, him out of, gets him out of fights here and there, and tries to give him some advice on how to, on how to get along. And then it all changes. One day they, they come in and they say, we're moving some new men into the barracks because we're moving some new prisoners in. And it turns out they split the prison camp in half with barbed wire. And on the other side of the barbed wire are Jewish prisoners. The, the, non- non-Aryans. the non-Aryans, they call them. And a whole lot of children. It's, you know, it's amazing. The more and more you, you read the script and, you, and the scenes, it's... There, there's a great sense of darkness in the movie. Was, you know, you really have to give him credit as a director and as an actor. He really threw away the Jerry Lewis personas we knew. You know, it's 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 it, you you look at the footage. I've heard people who've watched it and you know critics and things like that. It's you know, it was very Orson Welles esque. You know, in terms of what he was trying to capture. There are scenes that are just tr- truly brilliant in that movie. That I would have loved to get to hear those scenes his performance because the the thing that we're watching originally aired on german television it's all dubbed over in german so we you can't get a, a sense of um the what the the live performance was by the actor speaking english and i'm just so curious you know even like what it, does his voice sound like you know and this i assume it would be something probably closer to the king of comedy than to the nutty professor but just to hear his performance, I would be so interested. Well, it's funny. He, he also did his first dramatic role was in 1959, I believe. It was a, it was a, a television version of The Jazz Singer, mm. uh, the, the Al Jolson film. He, uh, he, he played a clown or a comedian, right? It was a, it was a comedian in it. Right. And that was a dramatic performance. And it was, of course, you know, pilloried by the critics. But you can see that you know, Jerry Lewis was a fine actor. He was a really good actor, as we saw later in uh, other films he did, like uh, Max Rose. And um, King of Comedy, and then what was the other one? Well, even the TV show Wise Guy. Right. He did the art. He did the arc on Wise Guy. Yeah. 
but and if you th- go back to the Nutty Professor, you realize the acting, you know, the two roles of Julius Kelp and Buddy Love. I mean, mm-hmm. that, that is acting. And Jerry Lewis will tell you, say, oh, he's acting like a nine-year-old child. He was always acting, you know. But when you make it look so easy and you do all those crazy noises and voices, people just think, oh, Jerry Lewis is just being Jerry Lewis. No, he's acting that role. That seems like that commonly happens to actors who become known for comedy, right? They, People think that's all they can do. I feel like it's a common refrain to hear people say that dramatic acting is easy. It's comedy acting that's hard. You know, And most comedy actors then try to have this moment, right, where they show off their dramatic chops. Absolutely. You know, um, like I said, Milton Berle was trying to do that to prove himself that he wasn't just a a burlesque shtick comedian. You know, it's funny, that quote of Jerry Lewis saying, you know, I had this script for 10 years and I didn't want to do it. You know, so in 1959, Martin Lewis had just broken up. Jerry's at, at the, still at the height, you know, doing these great TV specials. He does a dramatic version of the jazz singer, and it was panned. And years later, they were going to do a major Jerry Lewis retrospective, and they were going to show that movie for the first time. It had completely been lost. And at the last minute, Jerry said, no, I don't think so. I don't think it's ready to be shown. So he was not ready to show the public that there was this other side, you know. And so I think it did take until 1972 for to stretch. And then I think years later, when he turned on the movie himself, I think he realized maybe that's not the uh, persona I want people to see, you know. It wasn't the legacy he wanted to yeah. leave behind. So the prison camp is separated now by barbed wire into the non-Aryan side and the Aryan side. And on the non-Aryan side are children. And a lot of them are crying. A lot of them are, are, are very distressed. And Jerry Lewis goes over to the fence. And in order to calm the children, begins to clown. And it's something he would never do with the other prisoners. But he does it for the kids. And he makes them stop crying. He makes them laugh. And he brings them real comfort. So the guards allow him to do this. And Helmut, Helmut Dork, begins to find that inner clown again. The other inmates make him up a coat with a, and they sew buttons on it, and they give him, they give him a, a comedy coat, and he begins to put on clown makeup that he, he uses whatever he can find to put on some makeup on his face, and he's, he's got a, a putty nose. And he goes out there every day and takes care of the kids until one day another commandant takes over the prison camp and is looking out the window says, what's going on down there? And they said, well, it's this, it's this guy who's a clown and he's helping the kids. And they put a stop to it. And the guard comes down to, to Helmet, tells him to stop. Helmet clowns around in front of the guard and the guard beats him, be- beats him very viciously. Another prisoner comes over to, to stop it. He starts punching the guard. There's a fight. There's a whole fight scene going on here, which ends with one of the guards shooting a man point blank in the head in front of all the kids. And anyway, at that point, it's all over. Helmet the Clown is no longer going to perform for the kids. He winds up in a cell in solitary. That's probably well, the low point of the movie, right? So like, yeah. he no longer <laughs> even can be... I'd say the end's pretty low. <laughs> That's what I was going to say. So it's the low point in terms of the three-act story structure, right? Yeah. The resolution that comes in the act three is even darker, which is very non-Hollywood movie, right? Move. Right. This was a, this was a European film. This this was shot in in Paris and in Switzerland, Sweden. Sweden. And the 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 financiers were were from Europe. 
while they're making the film, as a matter of fact, the the money man, Nate, Nate, disappeared. Mm. Checks were bouncing. People weren't getting paid. Jerry Lewis started putting up his own money for it. He sold one of his houses. He sold his yacht. He was putting. You know, he also had to pay for the post production. But at this point, everything's going to hell, and it's just a matter of, of finishing the film. And the authors of the script, the screenwriters, didn't even get paid for the full option rights, right? Yeah, well, that, well, one, one that ends of, up being part of the reason why it, it never comes out, right? One of the punchlines was that in the end, they never had the rights to make the film. They, ne- <laughs> they never paid the writers, and then the option that they did have expired. So by the time they made the film, it wasn't their film to make. It wasn't their script to make. And then because they had not paid all the money that was due the writers, they were not allowed to um, change the script. So that was the big problem. Joan O'Brien had seen a rough cut of the movie and was distraught the way that Jerry had made those changes. If everything had been paid for out in full, Jerry would have been fun. There was nothing she would have done. But since money was still owed to her, she had the right to then say, I'm done. You have no rights. So that was the big issue on that. The Ingmar Bergman actress didn't get paid either. And in that piece that we saw, her friend is asking if somebody can still pay her like they can find her right because she's still waiting for her paycheck <laughs> and now she will never get well, it we 50 know that years later <laughs> yeah. yeah so right. helmut is corrected for uh, entertaining the children uh he's he spent some time in solitary confinement and uh and then things really take a turn well then they they they, they can use his help they're they're bringing they're, they're taking the children from the camp they're removing them they're putting them on a train car and they're going to take them to another camp. Uh, Helmet gets the job to keep the kids quiet because they're making a lot of noise. They're crying in the train car. Can you just go in there, get them to calm down before the train takes off? Then you can come. You know, then you come back to the camp. We'll talk about releasing you. Uh, so Helmet goes in, into the into the car. A heartbreaking scene when these little kids see him and they see Helmet and they, they one kid grabs his leg and the others all gather around him. And again, he, he performs for them. Uh, in the script, uh, one of the guards, one of the kindly guards gives him an old harmonica, and he plays harmonica with the kids, and he gets them to calm down. Well, in the middle of all this, someone shuts the door of, of, the, of the train car. And Helmet realizes, he, you know, he, he starts banging, let me out, let me out. The train starts taking off. Now Helmet is heading off to this other camp with the children which he didn't expect to do. And the kids are asking him where we're going, where are they taking us? And, of course, to the viewer, we think we do know where yes. they're going. And Yes. Does the script give a sense of whether this was part of the Commandant's plan to kind of, like, get rid of Helmet? Because it, it seems like it's left up in the air a bit as to whether this was really an accident or not. Well, in, in, in the script, they do make, they, they do make it clear that the, the commandant, the leader of the camp, thinks that he may have escaped. Mm. I don't think that everybody knew that he was, he was there because when he, when he does arrive at the next camp and he talks to the commandant of that camp, the person says, well, you're listed as an es- escapee. They're, they're looking for you. Uh, there, there is a scene where they say, you know, let's go out and find him. They say, well, he's not going to get far if he ran off into the woods. So they don't, they don't realize where he is. He's sort of a non-person now. Mm-hmm. They get to the camp and it's, out, it's Auschwitz. Yeah. And the children are there. Uh, they're taken away. They're put. They're put into a um, in, in, into a building, and Helmet is with brought, no windows. No windows, and Helmet is brought in to the commandant, and they say, "Now you can really help us. 
we need you to, and this was based on some historic uh, fact, because again, they did have to use ruses to get people into the gas chambers at times. They said, all you need to do is to take the children, because they're going to be very upset, calm them down, and walk them from building A to building B. Then they'll shut the door, and then we'll see about letting you go. And he's like, what? You, you want what? Children? You want to kill children? And they're saying, we're just being very efficient here because children will never forget what we did to them here. They're going to grow up and they're going to become warriors. This is a new kind of war. We're going to kill these fighters before they become fighters. Take care of them now. He spells it out to, to Helmet that they're going to kill these children. And Helmet doesn't know what to do. Well, the next scene that you see He's leading the children. In the script, in the script, he's like the Pied Piper. The children are dancing and they're laughing and they're and, and they're they're carrying on their way in with no idea, and Helmet is wiping away a tear. In the way Jerry Lewis filmed it, it was it was far more dramatic and far more moving. It was it was it was a death march. Jerry Lewis uh, Helmet is leading it. He's crying. He leads the children to the door. They trust him. They all walk into the into the building with no windows and helmet follows them in shut the door hear the hiss the end so he chooses to die with them yes yeah one of the children kind of looks back at him like holds his hand and he decides to walk through the door with her he he takes her hand yeah pretty bleak there's no place for comedy when I listen to this uh, <laughs> no, synopsis. Yeah. And that's the thing. I, um, you know, maybe, Sasha, we can talk a little bit about what our experience with Jerry and the day the clown cried was before this. Maybe this is a good opportunity. You know, I, it's an infamous production, right? A, a film that never came out. And I, I don't know if I just kind of assumed, but I always did have the impression that it was comedic and certainly the 30 minutes that we watch are not uh and so that that for me was surprising just based on what i had assumed uh this movie was kind of going to be well the comedy came later and you can thank a guy by the name of harry shearer for doing this harry shearer uh is is the satirist and he's the snarky comedy guru a member of spinal tap he did an article for Spy Magazine in 1979 and said that he saw the film, that someone had gotten him a copy of it, and he saw it. So was this film ever edited? I'm just going to interfere right here, because I, from what I understand, it was never cut together. Oh, Jerry Lewis spent months in post-production. Now, even after the whole issue of Joan o- O'Brien complaining, you don't have the rights, Jerry still was saying up until about 1973, oh, it's going to be released, I'm going to take it to Cannes. And he had a rough print of the movie someone else had the negative but so i know people who had people in the jerry lewis organization who said they had seen the movie so i completely believe harry did see the movie mm. it wasn't that the comedy it was it was the snarkiness of the movie i think people just always thought it was just a cheesy you know a jerry lewis the clown playing you know this uh, slapstick guy like is he gonna you know yell hey lady in a concentration camp that's what people had thought, really, because mm-hmm. this was before any footage had been seen. And having spent some time with Harry, I had worked on the tw- 25th anniversary of Spinal Tap, and Michael 
Christopher and Harry would sit around and they loved to make fun of the Jerry Lewis telethon, Jerry Lewis. You know, this is, you know, the guy in the tuxedo, the guy who would, you know, sing, you know, um, you'll never walk alone, you know, in the tuxedo. And that was Jerry Lewis that they liked to make fun of. They had forgotten the bellboy, the errand boy. So for Harry to make those remarks, it was in keeping with Harry to be snarky. And so Harry tells the entire world, right? He tells Hollywood and the entire world that he's seen this film, and it's in a terrible, terrible taste. Um, to quote Harry, seeing the movie is liking it to a painting on black velvet of Auschwitz. And I, that, have, I have a velvet Elvis at home. And that... <laughs> that sounds in great taste. And that rang... Not true, but that was the record of the movie for years mm-hmm. until... Well, then Patton Oswalt and his friends got together, and they would do comical readings of the script and you know do the jerry lewis character in the professor kelp voice or do him in the in the in the voice of a really nasty entertainer uh and they 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 made fun of it and did a lot of readings and got a lot of popularity about it again it was the it does sound funny it was the snarky hipsters making fun of the old school Mm -hmm. character and then also don't forget we had roberto bonini in life is beautiful so they said oh a comedian in a holocaust movie so that wait a minute, where have we heard that before? So that created renewed interest in that movie. Then Robin Williams did Jacob the Liar. Right. And then there was talk of actually um, getting a Day the Clown card remade. Someone said Chevy Chase, and even Robin Williams was attached, but that never happened. And that's why when... Adam Sandler. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And then when Patton Oswalt was to, would do these readings for Day the Clown cried, he would get... A cease and desist, not from Jerry Lewis, but the, the new uh, owners of the script. And so that's why those uh, readings were, all were prohibited. And at some point, because it was up, in, up until the 80s, Jerry will say, yeah, it may get released, it may get released. But at some point he realized, you know what, this is not a movie, it should have been made, I made a terrible mistake, and he was actually embarrassed by it. Yeah, at a certain point he starts saying that it's bad, right? Yeah. And he tells people to not ask him about this film or the interview will stop, right? He becomes very protective of this topic. So it becomes pretty much impossible to get any information from him. So people stop asking him about it. But once in a while, the fo- new footage would surface on YouTube, correct? Yes. And once in a while, uh, there, there's been a report that what the Library of Congress has it and they might release it, you know, years after Lewis's death. 20, 2025, I have my ticket, front row. <laughs> Well, they recently said that actually what they have is not a, like, completed uh, cut of the film, that they don't even have a completed cut. They just have some assembly of footage. I have a question to both of you. If you... Yes, lady. Imagine... If you imagine that the day the clown cried was out without all this controversy, without all this gossip and, you know, guessing of what it might be, where do you think this film would stand? Like, if it really came out without all this negative publicity behind it or controversial publicity, what would it be? Would it, would it be like Life is Beautiful? Would it be Oscar-worthy? I think it's an Oscar-worthy film. I think Lewis's performance is an Oscar-worthy performance. You know, not, nowadays, when you get a comedian playing a dramatic role, that's how, that's how they get their, their Academy Awards. This was 72 um, this is a film that, that, that influenced Spielberg. You know, when, when Jerry Lewis was a lecturer at, at, UC, at UCLA, uh, Steven Spielberg was one of his students. So was George Lucas and Francis Coppola. Uh, these guys all learned from, from Jerry Lewis. 
uh, I don't think there there might not have been a uh, life is beautiful because it would have been a joke compared to the day the clown cried. You know, Robin Williams did Jacob the Liar. Uh, there's right now there there is a film that that just opened at one of the film festivals. It's about a kid who's a Hitler youth and uh, Adolf Hitler's his imaginary best friend. Jojo Rabbit. Jojo Rabbit. Taika Waititi's name. Yeah. Nice. It's also quite possible it, if the movie had been released in 72, 73, the public may have not accepted Jerry Lewis in a dramatic role. Mm. It really wasn't until he did The King of Comedy where he got his first rave reviews and Jerry Lewis says, oh, now I finally get good reviews. He goes, that was easy. You know, <laughs> playing a nine-year-old child, that was acting. He goes, that, I, I walked through that. That was a piece of cake. So, you know, as much as I, I personally love Life is Beautiful, I remember seeing it in the original Italian, and when the credits came up, I could not move for about three minutes. I was I had never seen anything I was like a kid, that. and I loved this film when it However, came out. However, I remember Neil Simon hating the movie and thought it was disrespectful and terrible. So, there, I mean, I can't remember whether Mel Brooks um, was a detractor or not, but a number of people did detract it. So it, I don't know if it, it may have been a little too premature for Jerry. It may have one of those movies where people then go back years later and say, mm. ah, I get it. Sasha, did you have any foreknowledge of the day the clown cried before i did not did i think the the title sounded familiar when it came to be the subject of our mm, podcast that's because you're a big fan of that documentary about that circus fire that's right and the book which is mentioned in our book on exactly page. <laughs> i'm a fan of the book the show won't go on with the authors who are the guests of our podcast today if you're just tuning in if you're uh, just tuning in please <laughs> check the book out it's doing great right it's in our eighth printing the first seven were blurry. So Mil- Milton Berle, 1941. Um, but the reason the movie has such intrigue all the years later is because it's never been seen. Yeah. Speaking of things that have never been seen, and this ties into our book, there was an episode of the Dick Cavett show where someone died on television, and the episode never aired. And it's the most intriguing episode because everyone thinks it aired. So it's always that element of people wanting to see something you know sure so i think that's why i think that's why the movie has this special if it was it came out and no one liked it it would just be tossed in the uh the pile with all the other movies yeah. sort of like brian wilson's or the beach boys smile album mm. that had been talked about for years and years until you know 30 years later brian wilson recreated it or the dune right, right? oh yodorowsky's yodorowsky dune right mm. like that's there's a documentary about that there's a film much talked about and it was never made, right? But it was almost made, and there's a lot of artifacts surrounding it. Uh, yes, yeah, the, lo- the mystique is almost more appealing than the thing itself. Right, right, which may be the case with the movie we're talking about today. You know, I think it was what Prince had, I think, called the Black Album that never got released, maybe. I think that was the longest time was an underground album, and Terry Gilliam was supposed to do The Man of La Mancha. Mm. And he's made documentaries about the movie. So I think there's always that intrigue about something you can't see. And that's really do it. And then Orson Welles, The Other Side of the Wind, which was just was right. recreated for Netflix. Yeah. They, took, they took these pieces of a film that, was, that had never been completed. 
Yeah, I mean, the only thing we really have to go on is what we do know about Jerry, right? The things that we have seen, the things that are out there, and then these clips. Right? Stephen, how many Jerry Lewis movies have you seen, and which ones have you seen? Every one seven times. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. I thought that was for me. <laughs> I'm sorry. Uh, I haven't seen a ton of them. You know, I growing up in an American Jewish household, Jerry Lewis was... Uh, if not revered, certainly highly respected by my parents. Uh, you know, they anytime there's a documentary about him on PBS, we would watch it. So I've seen, you know, hours of clips and uh, the telephone. But for some reason, I never saw a ton of the whole movies. I've seen The King of Comedy, and I've seen some of the Martin and Lewis stuff. I've seen Artists and Models. and But I really had never seen just a Jerry movie so I watched um, The Nutty Professor uh, before this, and uh, yeah, it was my first r- pure Jerry experience. Very, It's very interesting, and he directed it, right? So you get a true sense of what... His uh, humor is. Well, his humor, but also just his style, you know? The Nutty Professor is very stylized, you know? In a really engaging way, it's such a colorful movie, and the sets are really fun to look at, and just the way people are moving around in the spaces, which unfortunately is not something you you get a great sense of in those clips from the day the clown cried because they're not like fully finished, you know. But to see Jerry take that directorial aesthetic, it would be so interesting to see what the finished product of the day the clown cried would have been. Twenty twenty five. <laughs> what about you, Sasha? I hadn't seen any uh, Jerry Lewis films. Well, I did see King of Comedy, actually. I thought it was a great film. Apparently, his performance was very much what he was going through, according to his interviews. He had a lot of stalkers. Hmm. He felt like people had were just you know imagining what his life's like and were trying to interject themselves into his life, personal life. So that's interesting to me, like to see like what is feels like a third act of his career, right? Like his first act maybe of his career was Martin and Lewis. Second act were all the Nutty Professor, Bellboy, uh, Aaron Boy, and a few other boy movies that I probably don't all know. All the boys. But, uh, Cinderfella and uh, Ladies Man, is it? That's what I call it. I, I always say when asking for Jerry Lewis, the Nutty Professor has gotten a life of itself. And some people go, oh, the Eddie Murphy movie. You have to remind him. <laughs> but no, I always say you want the boy movies and the man movie. You know, th- yeah, oh, interesting. Th- that is, the, the he's still, you know, in his third, he's in his early 30s. He's young. Absolutely. Nutty Professor is, is, is not my favorite movie. Um, I certainly enjoy it. There's some people are more Buddy Love fanatics. I'm more of a Professor Kelp fan. Mm-hmm. But, um, but you see what he did in the Aaron Boy and the Bell Boy. There's such minimalistic movies, but so brilliant. The Patsy is his film that is a real indictment of the Hollywood system. It opens with the death of a comedy star in a plane crash. And the people that all work for him, his whole entourage, figure they could get anyone to replace him because the people around him were the ones that made him big. So they, f- they figured, let's take anybody, an average guy, and then in comes this great scene of this, be- this bellboy into the room. And he goes, that's it. We found our Patsy. And then they t- try to mold him by giving him singing lessons and acting lessons and dancing lessons until he pulls the, um, the sheets out and p- proves um, Hollywood is a bunch of phonies. And also connecting the king of comedy to the day the clown cried. 
there's an interesting scene. This has come up recently. Someone was emailed me about this just last week. There's a scene where Jerry Lewis, playing Jerry Langford, the talk show host, is at his home in the Hamptons, and Robert De Niro and and his and uh, Diane Abbott, who played his girlfriend, show up unannounced at his house and talk their way in. The um, uh, butler allows them in. Jerry comes home and sees this guy who's been bothering him in his house, and gets really, really angry. Understandably so. <laughs> well, you see the scene on Jerry's face. What it turns out is they said De Niro stood off camera and shouted and said the most worst anti-Semitic things he could think of into Jerry Lewis's face to get Jerry's reaction of anger. And he kept saying worse and worse anti-Semitic things until Jerry like was ready to kill him. And what was the quote he said to De Niro? He says to, I think um, De Niro says, um, I'm trying to help. He goes, so was Hitler. <laughs> wow. That is an interesting part of the movie, actually, because it always felt to me that there's like a scene missing before that part, because they arrive all of a sudden to his mansion. But I feel like there's another part of relationship somewhere that's like been taken out of the script or like it was left on the cutting floor. Like that always felt like it just, it just jump in the story to get from the previous scene to them just unannounced arriving to uh, Jerry Langford's mansion that they have an address for. You know, it's funny. I, there was a retrospective with, with uh, Marty Scorsese, Jerry Lewis, and De Niro maybe 10 years ago when they were reunited. And they were talking about that scene. And if you remember, De Niro's in the house with his girlfriend and the um, Asian butler. And Jerry's trying to get in the door and he can't open the door. And it's stuck. And he said the door was really stuck. They couldn't get in. And the frustration is so great on Jerry's expression. And De Niro really did a great job of staying offset and not uh, mingling with Jerry. He's supposed to be someone who's stalking Jerry, so if they were going to have lunch together after shooting a scene, it would not work. I mean, mm. he said De Niro you know, is the most method actor in that movie. And it, the original character was not named Jerry Langford, and Jerry apparently told Marty Scorsese, you're going to be filming outside in New York. You're going to have some problems. You should, you should, you should sit, call him Jerry. And if you notice, he's walking down the street, all the, you know, the hard hat guys in the cab, right? hey, Jerry. Hmm. So it had a very real feel to it. So what are your guys' favorite Jerry movies? Is, is it the Patsy or the Aaron Boy? What is, what's the quintessential Jerry experience for you two? I love the ladies' man. You know, it's, again, this nerdy guy with, you know, with great names, Herbert Heaver. You know, he's, you know, he always Melvin, Stanley, you know, this nerdy guy, and he's got, his stock company, he's got Kathleen Freeman as the lady, you know, and he's in a house. He's a houseboy with, with all these women, and it's, and it's really a series of vignettes. You know, there's a scene in there. The great Buddy Lester, who's a character actor, comes into the scene to pick up his girlfriend, and Jerry Lewis tries to adjust his hat, and it is just, you know, madness ensues. You know, to describe it, we do it. Injustice, but watch it. And Orson Welles said this is probably the, one of the funniest things ever been captured on film. Also on that film, uh, The Ladies' Man, Jerry Lewis built at the time, which was the largest indoor set mm. in, 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 movie, in movie history. They called it the Dollhouse. And it was just a cutaway version of a three-story building where all, all the women lived. Every room was equipped with microphones. And the camera was able to be up on a crane or a dolly and just move around and saved a lot of money and saved a lot of time. He was, he was very innovative when it came to that. 
Would you say that's your favorite, Bert? That one and the Bellboy. I have, I have just have an affection for the Bellboy, which is the one he did on the fly. And again, it is a, just a series of unconnected gags and vignettes for the most part. Which you have to give credit uh, to Jerry Lewis. You know, he was making a lot of vignette movies in Hollywood, which is very hard to do. Well, he also said that he was Peter Bogdanovich was one of the first to give him a real appreciation in Esquire magazine when Bogdanovich was was a writer before he became a director, and. Uh, Jerry Lewis said to him, I make these movies without real plots and vignettes so that when the nine-year-old kid is coming into the theater late with his, with his uncle or his mother, he doesn't have to catch up with what happened before. Mm. So he, he had, a, he had a, pl- a plan behind the madness. It was also the, these type of vignettes and this kind of unique filming and the innovative filmmaking is what really captured the Europeans for Jerry Lewis. The Europeans are not big Martin Lewis fans. They're really more intrigued by the auteur, the filmmaker, mm-hmm. the director, the actor, uh, that he's carrying on the tradition of Chaplin and Keaton and people of that Tati. nature. And that's why, you know, Jacques Tati, Jerry Lewis loves Jacques Tati, you know. I do too. I do love Jacques Tati quite a yeah. bit. I yeah, have a Jacques I, Tati tattoo next to my Jerry Lewis tattoo, by the way. A Jacques Tati tattoo? Yeah, this Monsieur uh, right there. He is not French. Like, his background is not French. Did you guys know? Yeah, he's like of Russian descent, yeah. which is... So is Jerry Lewis. Yeah, the way you're describing the bellboy certainly sounds a lot like Mon Uncle or uh, Playtime. Yeah. And they borrowed from each other. I mean, Jerry Lewis bo- borrowed a lot from Jacques Tati as far as you know the gags with the audio and the the elongation jokes he's had where he's you know he's lifting weights and then suddenly they they fall and his and his arms get extended he he borrowed a lot from Jacques Tati and Jacques Tati I think making a movie every 15 years borrowed from Jerry Lewis I mean think of it Jerry Lewis was friends with Stan Laurel he was friends with Charlie Chaplin he was he was one of the great filmmakers and he he got one Oscar one Academy Award and it was for his humanitarian work. Mm. Jerry Lewis never got an Oscar for, you know, inventing the the video assist or for any any of the other work that he did. Or just a lifetime achievement in movies, you know, like a Paul Newman or a Peter O'Toole. The other thing which I love about the Jerry Lewis movie is the great physical comedy. You know, the Burt explaining gags, you know, lifting weights and your arms stretched down six feet. But it was also the verbal comedy. You know, the vo- that voice that would change to the, you know, lady. You know, that there's a scene in The Errand Boy where he's walking on the studio lot and he's introduced to someone by the name of Bay Wosenthal. And for about 90 seconds, Jerry Lewis is trying to pronounce a name and it's tears every time, you know, and... If you also in the uh, Aaron Boy, Jerry's trying to get out of a door with packages, and <laughs> it's just trying to repeat these instructions and this gibberish talk. It's just, it just makes me just laugh. That's what it is. He makes me laugh out loud. I think that's the job of a comedian, and he makes me laugh out loud the loudest and the longest. If there's something that I like Jerry Lewis for, it's for his comedy technique, which I say, right? So. If you watch Buster Keaton, right, he has a beautiful face, uh, he has uh, soulful eyes, but he's very deadpan, right? So there's a lot of physical comedy going on and gags that don't really reflect on his face. And But, you know, it's certain kind of comedy, right? The deadpan character where you see maybe his emotions coming through, but there's not a lot of movement on the face. Jerry Lewis had a lot of pantomime, 
you know, facial technique, right? Something that you would see maybe in multicam later on and in television history and things like that, which is slightly going away right now in terms of popularity, right? Because it's very presentational, theatrical, but it is very hard to achieve for an actor. And Jerry Lewis had the training in this pantomime and this physical workout since he was five years old doing pantomime uh, musical numbers outside and near his garage. So he had a bunch of you know, training that sort of came with him just having fun as a kid. And I think that his most strength to me as a comedian lays in that ability to do things with his face. I mean, there are so many moments in his movies where there, there is no dialogue. Not talking about The Bellboy, which is basically a silent movie. On Jer- or, or Jerry's character is a silent character. He speaks at the end. Right. Spoiler alert. <laughs> um, in The Ladies' Man, there's a scene where he's just trying to comb his hair. And you just see the gestures back and forth. And, you know, Chevy Chase said that, you know, everyone as a kid always tried to make those mugging faces. I mean, it's, it's yeah, I mean, he he knew how to use his body, the face, the body. If you look at Cinderella and he's doing that dance, you know, up and down the staircase, you know, it's pure ballet. It's pure, it's beauty. My favorite moment of Jerry Lewis from everything I've seen, including King of Comedy, which I think is the best movie of Jerry Lewis, even though it's not necessarily his vehicle. My favorite moment of Jerry Lewis is in the Aaron Boy that I haven't seen, but the scene that you sent me, Bert, when he is doing... Boardroom? Yeah, the boardroom pantomime scene. So what happens in that scene, Bert? Would you describe? Well, that's a scene where he, he wanders into the boardroom, an empty boardroom, and sits down, and a swing band music begins to play, and he pantomimes Count himself Basie. being the boss to a Count Basie number called Blues in Hoss Flat. And he plays along and plays the character pointing at everybody at the table, right? Yeah, it's freaking, it's a ballet, you know? It's yeah. a comedy ballet. And I never find myself laughing at that. I just, I'm in awe of mastery when I see something like that. And this is, to me, the peak performance of what Jerry Lewis is personally. You're absolutely right. I mean, there's so many great facial expressions and tics and movement in the face. You know, some of the Jerry Lewis's movies were written in collaboration with, an, with a gentleman named Bill Richmond, who should be definitely given credit. But I got to meet Bill Richmond, and we, we did talk about the chairman of the board sequence. And he said, that was old Jerry. He said, you know, Jerry had a gift for music, and he heard the music, and he started to act it out. And he just came it alive. And I knew a writer who had worked on the um, Geisha Boy, and he had known Jerry from the Martin Lewis stuff. He said, Jerry was the kind of guy, if you wrote four jokes for him, he would give you five. And that's the difference between a comic and a comedian. I mean, he had it in his blood. And again, yeah, I mean, if you go back and watch the chairman sequence, look at the faces in the pantomime. It's, 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 it's amazing on how many little pieces of business are in that that make up that film. So, I mean, now we're going to have to try and do something that is nigh impossible, you know? We're going to try and rate a man's life right? like jerry lewis jerry lewis left behind a full body of work right he uh decades worth of art and uh and influences mm-hmm. and now we're gonna boil it down to a, a number <laughs> a, a mere number that will haunt us forever now sasha i see you have a person's name written on your paper here and i'm wondering if that is your reference point for a one to ten scale here yeah what we do here on this podcast shut up i love it welcome what we do here <laughs> if you're just is, joining us. 
each of us, and I welcome you to do the same unless you feel like it's impossible for you to do. Yes, I mean, for you guys, Jerry might be the 10. and uh, <laughs> Or 25. A, he's an 11. What, what we do is create a personalized scale, 10-point scale, where we find another, in this case, comedian that we love and is up there, right, at 9 or 10. And then we would take Jerry Lewis, in this case, and see where does he fall in relation to somebody that we think he's comparable to. So let me understand this. On this scale, like a zero would be like, say, Carrot Top, right? Sure. I think Nothing. Carrot Top is no, wait, wait. very, very funny. No, I'm Carrot sure Top you go to no, zero. No, I actually worked with, with Scott, and he was very funny. It's just, unfortunately, it's a, it's one of the great punchlines at all time. And I, you set me up with a great opening. I had to throw that in there. I knew Carrot Top would come up somehow in this podcast, so I'm glad you did it. And he did love Jerry Lewis. Sure, chairman of the board. Couldn't help thinking about it when you were talking about that chairman seat. <laughs> Jeff worked on that movie. Um, uh, so, Sasha, who do you have written down here? So, what I have written down here is Buster Keaton, right? I already brought him up. But I wanted to bring in a name that is not after Jerry Lewis, right? Because I can bring in a comedian, even Eddie Murphy or somebody, sure. right? And be like, he's a freaking master. He's a 10. But I... Might not exist without Jerry. Right. I want to give Jerry Lewis credit for having influenced people and maybe somebody hating him but still being influenced by him right so that's why i took somebody who was decades apart in the opposite direction whose peak years were what 20s probably right maybe 30s and the most recent film i mean i saw the general and my the most recent film that i saw buster keaton's was uh steamboat bill jr which is not his most celebrated film but i found it very interesting kept me on the edge of my seat. The final famous gag of Buster Keaton standing on the open field and then a storefront falling down on him in the way that the door, or was it the window opening, saved him basically from being crushed to death. The best example of CGI I've ever seen in a movie. (laughs) In the 20s, they could do that. So, I mean, that's like a thing that you go back to and you just wonder... How could he even think of that? And how it just shows his passion, his love, and it adds adrenaline to comedy, which is something I think Jerry Lewis did as well. So Buster Keaton for me is probably a solid nine. He's not a 10 because I think he's still a little bit removed from me on the timeline. I didn't grow up loving Buster Keaton, right? It's something that I developed love for later on in life. Now, is he losing a point for those beach blanket movies? Tell me more about it. What are you saying? In the the mid-60s when Buster always Mm -hmm. wanted to work, and he never turned down work. He did those terrible Annette Funicello, Frankie Avalon movies. Did he lose a point there for that? Uh, no, but yeah, some people take all the jobs and some people pick what jobs they take, right? And he was going through a lot of alcoholism and, you know. Raw deal from the studio. Right, and his wife left. So I'm sure there's a lot going on. We're not here to talk about Buster Keaton. He's just there <laughs> at the nine looking down. And it's my turn now to see where Jerry Lewis would go. I see Jerry Lewis in the very much three chapters, which I brought up before. The early Martin and Lewis chapter, where he is a fast on his feet, energetic kid with amazing comedy technique, able to hold a very early TV audience, right? It's just shot in one freaking shot, primitive television, and you get sucked into it. It's so hard to show live comedy on television, and you're like, this is amazing what he's doing here. I was fascinated by that first chapter of his career, and then he loses me in the chapter two. Well... 
I actually did enjoy quite a bit The Bellboy, because I'm going to go chronologically. So I did enjoy the physical comedy of it. And I loved the scene with Aaron Boyd, the chairman of the board. And then like Nutty Professor, right? It's such a big film, like it's such a milestone for him. And I did not like it. I did not like him playing a person, maybe autistic, maybe held back in some other way. I did not like his cross-eyed performance. It just didn't speak to me. I didn't find it funny. I don't know. Comedy is such a personal experience. And it didn't make me laugh. It didn't make me enjoy his technique. There was just no connection. I was dead inside as I was watching The Night of Professor. What time is it? Do we need to leave? According to my Jerry Lewis watch. <laughs> really? Wow. Yes. Wow. This is an right. honest podcast, right? right? Yeah. And then I really liked him in King of Comedy. Mm-hmm. And I kind of give him a lot of credit for the day uh, the clown cried i still can't tell what the tone is of that film like if it's super sappy then i feel like then it needs to be more jerry lewis if it's funny then it's in bad taste but i give him credit for being brave enough to try something because it's so hard right to especially when you feel like the rug from under your feet is being pulled away and you're losing that you know status of being the king of comedy and you see all the new guys, probably very few women, but a lot of guys coming in. And he's trying something different. And so I give him credit for that. So, and I've seen you guys so passionate about him. I can't <laughs> help but being influenced by it. I've seen you guys tattooed Jerry Lewis all over yourselves. Like, what am I going to do? Um, if Buster Keaton is nine, Jerry Lewis is a generous five for me. <laughs> I think I just died on stage. Uh. I don't matter. I'm just I'm just one sole voice from Siberia calling in with my little experience of Jerry Lewis. I just think he got really big because there was not a lot else going on around him. I think there was Bob Hope, a couple of other people, you know, there was obviously Dean Martin, but I think I think he just kind of took over and I just can't help to kind of be a little overwhelmed by how obnoxious he comes off in those interviews <laughs> and how full of himself he comes off and it just doesn't help me love him because there's something about kindness that i don't pick up on at all even though of course he worked on those telethons but i'm like i just don't get that from the interviews so for mm. me he is a five because there's some brilliance that i recognized but overall i'm not connected to his comedy yeah. steven what about you? It does seem like he, the person, was more Buddy Love than Professor Kelp, right, in real life. In terms of a 9 and 10, I was going the same place as you, Buster Keaton, Jacques Tati, you know, people we've been talking about so far. I I responded to it a little bit more than you did, I think. I would um, hope so, because I want to be the bad guy. <laughs> um, I also didn't love all of the professor kelp stuff in nutty professor but the technique to me is astounding you know the this is him at like the height of his power right and and it it shows and uh in terms of the day the clown cried yeah you know i we don't know what the product is we'll never know probably you know 2025 get your like jeff did (laughs) even then you know i don't think we'll really know but it seems like his intentions are there, you know. The people who say, oh, Jerry Lewis just wanted to win an Academy Award, you know, maybe that was part of it. I don't know. But he's doing something that people weren't doing at the time, right? 
Now, a comedian does a Holocaust movie, absolutely, you think, oh, he's just trying to get an Academy Award, right? But this was, this was not a thing people were doing at the time. He was pushing a boundary in the right way, even though we'll never know what the final product was. 2025. <laughs> as someone who has seen Jerry more as like a almost uh, otherworldly figure and haven't had a ton of experience with him in practice, familiar with him more in theory, uh, I'm right now I'm going to put him at a seven, but I'm more than eager to explore more because, you know, hearing you guys talk about the boy films and the man film and all that makes me want to go home and watch them now. So that's a seven with, with plenty of room to go up. And seven and five equals 12. So he's hey, a 12 out of 10. How about that? <laughs> Do we even need to ask you, but we want to hear your yeah, rating you slash final thoughts. My final thoughts on Jerry Lewis. I, I was lucky enough to have worked on one of the telethons with Jerry Lewis. And then two years later, spent a week with him filming the preparations for the telethon and then the telethon itself, Jerry Lewis, through the entire um, ordeal of, of the telethon. And that's where I, I got to see Jerry. I know that Jerry Lewis could be a prick. He was, you know, he, he was crazy in very many ways. But that's Jerry Lewis. He was very nice to me. Mm -hmm. And I also feel that Jerry Lewis is the one figure who represents all facets in, in, in one body, in, in one person, there's 20th century entertainment. Mm. There's a man, you know, the, the, the pompousness, the neediness, the drive, the ambition, the talent, the talent that he had in so many different ways. You talk about that, the, the chairman of the board scene. He got his start doing what they called a record act, and it was pantomiming to records that he would do in the Catskills and this and that. He put on a record and then he would act it out. That's why he was so expert by the time he was in his 20s and did, the, and did that scene. But I think there's no other entertainer who managed to master, not just uh, you know, perform in, but master so many categories of entertainment, from tumbling in the Catskills, to singing, to dancing, to conducting, to acting, to you know, you, you know, radio, television, stage, Invention. nightclubs, Vegas. Broadway. You know, Broadway, you know. Jerry Lewis you know, was, was that, that ultimate figure. And when, when, I, when, I, when I did get to meet him, it was, you know, it was like a kid meeting, you know, they always say, you know, don't, don't meet your idols. Well, in this case, it just it had a great effect on me because, he, 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 again, he was very uh, good to me. And when we filmed him in his off scenes, he gave us Jerry Lewis for this thing that we shot with him. He had a tantrum. He, jo <laughs> he did practical jokes. He did the voices. He did everything. He, he bowed down to Frank Sinatra in a, in a two-way interview he did, and he did gags. He was, he was Jerry Lewis. And that had a great effect on me. My kids, of course, are a bit disturbed because I have the, the painting uh, by Margaret Keene of Jerry Lewis and his family. I have a reproduction of that in a golden frame in our dining room. And my children would say, Daddy, why, why do we have another man's family, another family on, on the wall at our dining room? What do they think of him? My son, who is now 23 years old, little Sammy, tells me that I really uh, fucked him up by, ha by having <laughs> Jerry Lewis in his life the whole time, having to listen to Jerry Lewis music and seeing pictures of Jerry Lewis in the hallways and everything, but I think he understands, yeah. Like, and your daughter? She's a teenage girl. She ignores me completely. So I have no idea. Nobody knows. <laughs> yeah. so, so can you, I mean, probably it sounds like you can't even put a number on Jerry. What's the point? 
I guess. No, I don't think you can put a number. You know, it's funny. Um, you mentioned in my intro that it's I'm involved priceless. with I'm involved with the National Comedy Center, and they were very um, smart. And when we were putting it together, they didn't call themselves a comedy hall of fame. You know, um, mm. Louis Black, who's a board member, said, "You know, you don't go to the Met." You know the Museum of Modern Art, and go. Hey, I wonder if uh, we're going to vote in Monet. You know, <laughs> you know, is, is he in the Hall of Fame? So, and you know, when they did the first year of the TV Hall of Fame, the first two comedians were Milton Berle and Lucille Ball. And it's like, and Jackie Gleason was like really pissed. He goes, "I'm not in the first group." You know, it's like, it's very difficult when you rank people because they have different styles. You know, Jerry Lewis is different than Keaton. He's different than Chaplin. Curly Howard or Groucho, W.C. Field. So it's you are kind of, in one way, comparing apples and oranges to different types of performers. I mean, that's one thing. And I, I think once you factor in the personal side of someone's life, it's really not right. Because, I mean, we've all heard nightmares that Milton Berle was an SOB and Frank Sinatra was not that friendly and Bob Hope was a womanizer. If you're going to do that, I mean, it's like, why don't we start drug testing in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame? You know, you, we're not, that shouldn't be the criteria. Like I said earlier, if we're talking about someone that makes me laugh the loudest and the longest, Jerry is way up there. But, you know, W.C. Fields and Groucho are way up there too. But and having met the man... Do you have t-shirts with Groucho yeah, on would, it? Yes. Um, I did as a kid. Okay. <laughs> um, I got this from an auction from a guy who was a big Jerry Lewis collector. For our listeners, yeah, Jeff is wearing a t-shirt with the famous... <laughs> Jerry Lewis logo while wearing a Jerry Lewis watch. <laughs> and Bert just has it tattooed in his arm. That's two, all. Two just tattoos. two tattoos, Bert? Come Thank on. You. Two tattoos. Um, having met him also, you know, I counted. I either met him or saw him in person about 25 times. Wow. And it was always a delight. I know people who, Bert and I both know people who worked with him on the telethon for 20 years and just adore him. Um, I, I, th I mean, he, like I said, the night before, while I was um, doing research, I got down a rabbit hole and watched some Martin and Lewis Colgate Comedy Hour clips. And I was by myself laughing out loud. Very few people make me laugh out loud by myself. You know, there is the great sure. thing when you go to revival theater and you're with a group of people and you're laughing at mm -hmm. Chaplin, you know, doing the dinner rolls or, you know, or the modern times of the machinery. But Jerry, I don't need anyone else. Like I, I said, agree that it's a really great test. Does this person or does this film make you laugh yeah. by yourself? And also, you know, and also comedy doesn't necessarily age well. You know, I mean, what, what was funny for one generation isn't going to be funny to another. When you look at Jerry Lewis's films that are like 60 years old, I was just watching, looking at The Nutty Professor today, and, you know, the timing, the timing is much slower than we're used to. Mm -hmm. And jokes that, that, would make, that would make you fall on the floor, you know, in the 1960s because it was new and it was fresh today, you're like, that's sort of funny. You can, you can watch a Jacques Tati film and be like, oh, yes, that's very funny. But you won't laugh. <laughs> you go, oh, it's very, very, I get that, you know. So that's why it's also difficult to, to, to look at that. You've got to look at it and realize that it's it's of its day. But yeah. at the same time, I think there are moments in those mo movies. That are class, Not yeah. every movie, even in the boy movies and the man movie, every moment is perfect. You know, if you remember the um, Aaron boy, you know, there's that scene with the clowns and the little puppets. I go, oh, really, Jerry? So, I mean, not every movie is 100% perfect, mm -hmm. but there's enough in there and a body of work. 
like I said, I mean, you think of Sinatra, the body of work and the influence. You know, I was very lucky to be a consultant and the publicist on a documentary, The Method to the Madness of Jerry Lewis. And you see Eddie Murphy and Quentin Tarantino and Seinfeld and all these people that talk about the influence of Jerry Lewis. And, and then you watch the movie and you go, yeah, you know. He made people laugh, and I'll I'll end it on this note. I won't give a number. You know, I could say eleven, <laughs> like Spinal Tap, but you know why do that? But Jerry Lewis said there used to be a place in um, New York called Hard and Harder, the um, Automat. Horn and Harder. Horn and Harder. And Sardi's was the fancy restaurant. And Jerry Lewis said, "I may not get the best table at Sardi's, but at the Automat, Jerry Lewis is king." He was the comedian of the people. And that at the end of the day, that's the most important thing. Hell yeah. Thank you so much for coming in. Is there anything you'd like to plug? Yeah, you guys want no. to talk about your book at all? Oh, the book. <laughs> we forgot the book. <laughs> yes, we do have, we have a Please book. Please tell us about your book. It, it, it's just published recently. It's called The Show Won't Go On, The Most Shocking, Bizarre, and Historic Deaths of Performers on Stage. In and the middle of it. In the middle of performing, yeah. people who have dropped dead either by um, ailment, suicide, accident, murder. Bullet bullet catching. Yeah. Buried alive. <laughs> Smashed by th- walls. By walls. Just getting back to, you know, what people have said about the book is that basically it's, it's not a morbid march of death, a cavalcade of people dying. It, it is a celebration of, of show business and performers' lives. It's very funny. It's very... Engaging. I, I read it, and yeah, I thought it was a very great tone. Like, it was it was a lot of irony, just embracing that irony of what life but and death But not snarky. We, we, no. We're not making... You know, we don't make fun of anyone. I mean, we talked to, to, to survivors of people who died on stage 30 years ago, and they cried during their interviews. You know, so yes, there, there's there's irony in in many of of the passings. I mean, the woman who's singing, "Please don't talk about me when I'm gone," then drops dead, and everybody gives her a standing ovation. <laughs> you know, the comedian who's who says, "You know, uh, let's pretend that we're the only people left in the world, and I will be your leader." And then he does a face plant onto the stage, and they people people uh, laugh hysterically. And then when he doesn't get up, they ask for their money back. <laughs> Uh, that that sort of thing. So there are there is some unintentional humor in it, but what we really wanted to do was to was to celebrate people who gave their lives to show business. And the, use the word uh, the right word irony. And the the original scope of the book was was kind of more trivial. Was to or I should say trivia was to hey did you know so-and-so performers died before our show or did you know so-and-so died 24 hours after their performance and it was kind of that kind of trivia it was never about death it was it was kind of like counting their rare stats you know did you know that john and whistle the who died in a hotel room with hookers and blow allegedly the night before the who was ready to start a tour so it was that kind of irony wow and then there were enough we went past irony to like Wow, a lot of people did die on stage. We had, mm. when, we, when we hit 1,000 people, we said, okay, we've got to narrow this down to people who died on stage. And that got it down to 500. <laughs> the big issue we have is people keep dying on stage. Which you do tweet and post about, Bert, yes. right? You're updating I mean, I used, that book as we speak. I used to wake up in the morning and check the obits to see if my name was in the obituaries. And if they weren't, I would get up and have breakfast. Now we check to see who else has died. And whether they died on stage. In, and we, we have it on our website, theshowwon'tgoon.com, 
or you can get to it by <laughs> diedonstage.com as well. It all goes to the same place. <laughs> We've got about 20 people who have died on stage in 2019 alone. Wow. And in the past three weeks from when we're doing this interview, there have been five people who've died on stage. The drummer in a, um, in, in a Motown tribute band in Connecticut, the bass player in a Chicago tribute band in Long Island, New York, a popular Indian singer who keeled over in the middle of singing a pop song and the, on video and it went viral immediately, a Spanish pop star in front of 5,000 people at, at a festival who was performing the, the final number of a, of a huge show when a pyrotechnic rocket went in the wrong direction and hit her in the stomach oh, and exploded. Geez. And one of the contestants on South American, uh, South African Idol who died just, just this week. It would have been six people because there was a, a guitarist by the name of Dan Warner. He's a four-time Latin Grammy winner, one-time Grammy winner. He was performing at a pub called Shenanigans in Hollywood, Florida, put down his guitar, walked to the bar, dropped out of a heart attack. He wasn't, unfortunately, still on stage, so he wouldn't make the book oh. of the website. Wow. But yeah, the show does go on when it won't go on. <laughs> and uh, where can our audience members can see us make it or die on stage, Stephen? Uh, yeah, if you're in Los Angeles, you can come to the Moving Arts Theater on Hyperion Avenue the second and fourth Thursday of every month, 9 p.m., the Direct-to-Video Awards, where we may die. You know, no, I can't please. think of a better place to go except on stage. Wait, did I hear the word naked? I think Sasha said make it. Oh, I'm sorry, sorry. But I also first thought <laughs> you said naked. He heard naked. Uh, it's either we'll be dead or naked. Yeah. Uh, yeah, we've never tried to do a show naked, but... People have done it before. People yeah. have done uh, shows naked. People have done shows on uh, various substances, and it's always a hoot. <laughs> uh, thank you, Jay Hunter, for production support. Yeah, thank you to Andrew Hayworth for our theme music. And thank you, Elizabeth Saud, for artwork. Thank you, Jeff and Bert, for coming down to the studio today. And thank you, Jerry Lewis. Absolutely. And thank you for having us. No problem. And thank you for listening. Thank you.